So as I mentioned before, we are at the end of the series on At the Cross. We've been looking at various characters who were actually present, physically present at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. They saw with their own eyes uh, Jesus hanging on the cross. And perhaps at the time, they didn't quite know the full extent of what he was doing or what uh, would be accomplished through his sacrifice there. Yet now we can look back and see their story part of a larger story. We saw the Roman centurion, uh, the the guard in charge of guarding Jesus, uh, the one who proclaimed in faith, surely this was the Son of God. And then we met uh, Mary Magdalene, a a faithful, devoted servant of Jesus, who, who once she met him, once her life was changed, she followed him wherever he went. She was there at the crucifixion. She was there at the empty tomb. She was the first one to go uh, and, and, and see him. And then we, uh, we met Mary, the mother of Jesus, who from the very first moment she heard the news from God that she would bear his own son. She struggled, wrestled, but always in faith, and perhaps even questioning what was God doing watching her son be crucified. And yet, she kept faith in God's promise to her and to us. And then last week, we, we met the criminal who was literally crucified right next to Jesus, who had uh, a view that none of us would ever want or can imagine, as he himself was also enduring similar sufferings, but one who in faith looked at Jesus and in a prayer of confession and a plea for mercy said, Jesus, remember me. And of course, Jesus grants him that request. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. But tonight, we look at one other person, or rather a handful of people, who are also at the cross. You, and me, and all of us. We were at the cross with Jesus. We will look for ourselves there. Perhaps, perhaps you know the Lenten hymn, Were You There?, when they crucified my Lord. Tonight, we'll, we'll try to, to answer that question by saying, yes, we were there too. But before we get into that, uh, raise your hand if you have ever traveled back in time. Anybody? Have you mastered time travel? If you, if you did, let me know. I think that'd be pretty cool. I don't know if, I don't know if that's one of your, you know, you ever play the game where you ask, like, what would your superpower be? Time travel sometimes makes the list to be able to, to go backwards or forwards in time, which would be pretty neat. Um, that's not mine, but, uh, but that would be pretty neat if you could do that. It, it certainly makes for good science fiction, right? A great movie series, Back to the Future, plays on this. But the ability to travel back in time could be pretty eye-opening. And yet it seems foolish. It, it doesn't seem like that's something that we will ever accomplish to do. I don't know if anyone's actively working on that. Maybe somebody is. But I don't think it's ever possible. Unless, I don't know, unless God has something to say about it. We did just read that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and that we know that nothing is impossible for God, so I suppose time travel could be something that we do eventually. I don't know. But we're going to travel back in time tonight, not just with our memories, but to see how, how God, God has actually connected you to that event. And I want you to be able to see that you were there at the cross with Jesus. Speaking of going back in time, then, we're going to go back into our history, a story that we read in the early uh, books of the Old Testament, back to Exodus, 
when we look at God's people and the time that they spent in Egypt. You probably know the story of of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, who goes to Egypt because his brothers were, uh, well, they had a bone to pick with him. But Joseph saw God's providence through it all, and then Joseph was able to set up uh, provision for, for his family, for his people. And they spent some time there. God blessed them, and they multiplied. But then there was a Pharaoh who showed up who didn't know the whole story, and he, he saw that their numbers were getting so great that he enslaved the people. And then for 400 years, God's people, Israel, were slaves in Egypt. And that's hard work. And they, they felt abandoned, perhaps, by God, and they cried out. And, and God then worked through Moses. Moses and his story, eventually Moses finds a burning bush, and God speaks to him and says, you are the one I'm going to send to my people, to Egypt, to bring them out. And of course, you know then the stories, too, about how Moses did signs and wonders. God was with him, and there were uh, plagues. Uh, and we get to this, ni- this tenth plague, this tenth plague where, where God gives both a warning and a promise. This, this tenth and final plague, God says, this will be the one who will convince Pharaoh to let my people go. God said, on this night, I will go throughout Egypt, and I will strike down dead every firstborn in Egypt. Man, beast, doesn't matter, firstborn. But with that warning came a promise as well. That if you listen to my word, God says, if you trust me, here's what you will do. Take a lamb without spot or without blemish. Sacrifice it there and eat it as part of a Passover meal. But then take the blood of that lamb and paint it on your doorposts. And when I come to strike down the firstborn in Egypt, and when I see the blood on the doorposts, I will pass over you. You will be saved. You will be spared. And this is something that God established, not just as a one-time event, but after Moses had led the people out, he says, make sure that you do this every year, year after year after year, until you get to the promised land, and even after, so that you can recall what I did for you in Egypt. And so, We fast forward about 40 years, so now we're time traveling, right? Fast forward 40 years from that time period, and God has led the people throughout all their sin and his grace, finally to the edge of the promised land, and they're looking over, and God says to Moses, remind the people one last time that as they go into this land that I'm giving to them, remind them of everything that I've commanded you and everything that I've given you, so that they might know forever that I'm their God and they are my people. And so Moses, Moses then, recalls this event. Here's what he writes for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to 24. He says, when your son asks you in time, so down the road, uh, presumably this is perhaps as a son or a daughter or a child who has not yet been born even. But when your son in time to come asks you, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. In other words, why are we doing this? <laughs> Have you ever asked that question? Why are, we, why are we doing this? Here's what you're to say. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt, 
and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Did you catch the inclusive language? This is something that Moses was to tell the people, and they were to tell their children. Not that this is what happened to our forefathers long ago, but this is what God did for us, for you right now. Even though you weren't in Egypt, even though perhaps you weren't even a a sparkle, a twinkle in your father's eye, you are a part of this story. This is what God has done for you. And so we can think of the Passover and their celebration of it as an atemporal event, meaning above time, without restraint when it comes to time. In essence, when they celebrated that Passover, as they ate the lamb and the bitter herbs and they did those things, it was as if they were there in Egypt with the people and God was saving them just as much as he was saving those long ago. They participated in that event. And that's what remembrance means. We hear that word remembrance, too, when we eat a similar meal. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This wasn't meant to just simply be a mind game or a thing that you recall cognitively, but something that you actually participate in. In essence, you travel back in time to when God did this event, not for, not for them, but for us. And so we have this, this idea of this Passover forming who the people are. This, this isn't just something that happened. This is your identity. This is who we are as a people. God saved us. And, and we have a Passover of our own. I made reference to it here. When we eat the Lord's Supper, Christ reshapes the Passover for us. We no longer sacrifice a lamb or eat bitter herbs, but but Christ redefined or reshaped what the Passover is for us. And it's Christ on the cross, and it's Christ in the empty tomb. So here's what Paul writes. As we're thinking about the cross and what Christ has done for us, he writes this in Galatians 2, chapter 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How can Paul, who is writing these words, who is clearly not dead, say, I have been crucified? Was Paul hanging on the cross? Was Paul even there? We don't know. How can you and I say these words in faith? I have been crucified. We weren't present 2,000 years ago. We weren't in Jerusalem. We weren't even alive. And yet in faith, we also, with Paul, say, I have been crucified. It's something that has happened to me. I think we can understand this best when we think about an actual exchange. If, If you needed help and I came and I helped you, if you were hungry and I gave you food, If you needed help on your homework, and I I helped you figure it out. 
If I stood in the place of something and, and shielded you or protected you or took the brunt of something for you, there's an easy way to see that there's an exchange that happened. There's a physical exchange. There's an experience that we all share together. And that's easy for us to understand. But, but how can a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, how can that death have any sort of real impact on us today? There's not a real physical exchange. I didn't see Jesus with my eyes. I didn't have his blood sprinkled on me. How do I receive the benefit of that sacrificial work? How can I say I have been crucified with Christ? Well, Paul goes on to write these words in Romans chapter 6, 3 to 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In your baptism, which was, which is, a real event that happened to you, that experience of water being poured on your head, attached with the promise of God that all of his glory and grace and love and mercy come with it. Through that event, through your baptism, you are connected. You are united. You have traveled in time to the cross where your sins were nailed, where your sinfulness was buried. And in the same way, too, as Christ is raised from the dead, you, too, walk in newness of life. It's not something you will do later. It's something you are doing right now. And so because God is above all of this, in a mysterious yet beautiful way, your baptism, your baptism connects you to that real event on the cross where Christ suffered and died for you. And so in baptism, you are present at the cross. I love to say this every chance I get when I talk about baptism. I love to remove the, the past connotation or language around baptism. I want you to remove the idea that you were baptized. Rather, you say, I am baptized. Like the Passover, like the Lord's Supper, like the crucifixion, it's not just an event that happened in the past, but because of God's grace through baptism, you were there with Jesus at the cross as he suffered and died for you. But the cross and this idea of, of, of Jesus' death affecting us is a bit foolish. Seems that way, at least, to a lot of people, that someone dying on a cross 2,000 years ago could have a real effect on you today. Paul says that in the letter to the 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, but that message is foolishness. It's a stumbling block to those who, who don't believe. Yet to us who have faith, to us whom God has given his spirit, that is the power of God. The foolish act of dying gives you life. Life now and life for eternity. 
Paul writes, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You are in Christ Jesus. Baptism puts you into Christ Jesus, and so whatever Christ has done or does now or will do, you are connected to him. You receive all the benefit of everything he's ever done because of God's graciousness toward you. And so the cross now is wisdom. We can look at the cross and we can know that it was intended for ill. It was intended for evil, just like Joseph and his brothers. Yet God looks at the cross and sees the place of power and grace and love. And so when we see the cross, we don't just see something that happened, but something that is a part of who we are. God has made us into his children. He has clothed us with his righteousness by his death on the cross. You have in your bulletins, or for those watching at home, we're going to pull this up on the screen, uh, a picture here. Um, This happens to be one of my favorite images. Um, If you actually come visit me in my office, you'll see this hanging right behind me on the wall. Uh, This is a, a painting entitled Forgiven by an artist named Thomas Blackshear. And uh, it, it might be hard to see on the screen. We're going to zoom in a little bit, for, especially for you watching at home, um, on a few key aspects of this painting. I want you to first notice what's in this man's hands. In his right hand, he's holding a hammer, and in the other, he's holding a nail. We can understand that it, it's our sin that Jesus died for. Now, Jesus isn't a victim in that he had no choice. One of the beautiful things about the cross is that he chose to go there, knowing what it would be, knowing that it was our sins. Yet he goes dying for the one holding the hammer and the nails. He dies for you and for me. Next, we we zoom in a little bit on, on Christ's hands. You can see that in this picture, Christ is bearing the mark of those nails. The mark remains in Jesus' hands to this day as a sign of his love for you. Hands that were outstretched, bearing and holding the sin, not just of you or me, but of the entire world, so that forever and always we might know that he loves us. And you can see, too, Jesus' face and the face of this man. This man looks to be tired and worn out and exhausted. It's hard work nailing nails into a board. Yet if you look at Jesus' face, it's calm and peaceful and compassionate. Now I wish if I had the skills, I would animate this picture (laughs) and I would change that man's face, but I think we, we can get there. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, this man's demeanor, our demeanor, can change. God doesn't want you to sit in the guilt of what our sin does. 
Rather, we focus on the empty cross, the fact that Christ is alive. If I could change this picture a bit and animate it, I would, I would have that man's face change into a smile and thankfulness and humility as he turns to embrace the one who's holding him up. Because that's what Christ does. He holds you. He loves you despite what we do. His forgiveness is ultimate and total. And then finally, it might be hard to see, but at the very bottom of this picture, there's a, a river of blood coming from Jesus toward us. But this river of blood doesn't lead to a valley of death. Rather, it is the thing that brings new life. There are Easter lilies that are growing. And that is where we want to go. That is where God leads us. That is what his blood does. The blood that he shed in his death is the very thing that gives you life. So as we look at the cross, and as we consider and contemplate what Christ did, as we approach Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, this is the reason we call it good. Because although it was a dark day, and it does demonstrate our sinfulness, ultimately the cross is Christ's victory. The place where he won you and me back to himself, where we might live for eternity where God is leading us, just like he did to those Israelites, to the promised land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with God's love, with his grace, with his peace. And because of Christ, all of that is yours, now and always. Amen.